Last chapter had a lot to do with suffering and withstanding the suffering, having to go through both Nero hunting down Christians and burning them up, throwing them uh, before lions and wild beasts in the Colosseums or in the different events, different stadiums. Then also the pressures of family members who were still in Judaism cutting you off, not doing business with you, not wanting to be family with you, friends with you, and all of that difficulty. And one of the things I've always wondered, right, I don't really want to have to go through it, but one of the things I've wondered is, man, how do you lead a church in the midst of persecution, right? It's one thing for me to be willing to go through suffering for my walk and relationship with Christ, even though it may cost my family, my kids, different things like that. But how do you lead? How do you encourage other people to willingly lay down their lives for Christ, to not turn away, to not forsake him, right? to not forsake the assembly of the brethren. And it's written down in history that there are times where dads, husbands are faced with the enemy, with their wives, and they told the husband, hey, just forsake Christ. You won't have to see your wife and your daughters raped. You won't have to see your family put to death before you. And there are believers who... They just, they stood for the Lord no matter the cost. And the difficulties with that, right, the heritage that we have of believers who stood for Christ no matter what the cost. And here Peter, he takes a break. He takes four verses to encourage church leadership in the midst of so much persecution, in the midst of such a difficult season. And some of us here, we're saying, I'm not church leader, so I guess I get a 45-minute nap. No, not the case. These scriptures are so important for us because you get to check us out, right? And make sure, is Calvary Chapel Miami really doing things in a biblical manner? Are the pastors, is Pastor Zach, Pastor Raz, the rest of the pastors, are they really leading in a biblical manner? And then if the Lord ever calls you to another church, if you have a friend or family member that you're praying for and they're at another church, for us to know what God's word has to say about churches and leadership and the heart and the attitude that we should have within leadership. And then I hope, I pray that there's some here that are saying, I do desire to be in a place of leadership. I do desire to do more for the Lord and to be able to bless the flock and encourage the flock. And it's just a great uh, portion of scripture all around. So verse 1, it says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. There's a word right in the middle of this verse, and it's the word exhort. And I don't think it's a word we really use that often today. And it's a Greek word that literally means to call to one's side. Uh, in other portions of Scripture, it's used as beckoning someone or calling someone to, hey, come, come close to me. And that's where we get this word from. And once you've called that person to your side, you're then urging them to do something. Quite literally, it's to excite someone else. It's to give someone else strength and spirit and courage, trying to persuade someone through earnest appeal to follow a certain course of action. That's really what it means that you're trying to excite someone else, right? Maybe you have someone that you love dearly and they're just saco de papa, right? That's what we say in, uh, in Spanish, right? They don't do anything. They're just like a blob that sits there, right? And you're trying to excite them. You're trying to give them strength and courage. You're trying to give them spirit so that they would go down a certain path, a certain course of action. Right? I don't know how many people here have ever played pinball, right? 
When was the last time someone even thought about pinball? But I thought about it tonight, right? Studying, preparing. The way you get that little metal ball to fly as hard as you can across that thing, right, is you're pulling that spring back as far as you can, and you want that ball to stay as tight to that plunger as you can just so you could send it and see how far it goes. And really, that's what exhortation is. It's to call someone close to you, close besides you, and then you're saying, come here, I'm going to show you something through closeness, through proximity, right? You could think of a slingshot as well, that you want that rock or that marble, right, as tight in there as possible, and you're pulling it back, pulling it back, pulling it back, and then you're letting it go, letting it fly. You see, in the world, the route that leadership usually takes is you just look at someone and you say, hey, you, go over there and go do that thing, right? I'm going to stay here. I'm going to stay in my office. I'm going to stay in my ivory tower. But hey, you, you go clean the toilets. I'll be back later, right, to make sure you did a good job. Usually that's how leadership works, right? How often do we fail as parents saying, hey, you, go to your room and go do your homework, right? Leave me alone. I got to do this. I got to watch my novella. I got to do X, Y, or Z, right? But hey, you, you go do this, right? And that's leadership within the world. But what has worked out best in your life, right? Someone just going, hey, you. These are all the things that I see wrong in your life and terrible in your life. Go do something about it. Or having someone come alongside of you saying, hey, wouldn't it be great if you did this? Wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be incredible if we went down this certain path? Hey, why don't you join me? Why don't you come with me and let's go down this path? And that's what exhortation is. I know in my life that's what's worked out best when people have tried to just throw me or just point me in another direction, just pointing out all my faults and failures, usually my prideful heart doesn't handle that too well, right? But yet even in my pride, if someone can come alongside of me and lead me down the right path and give me that right strength and that right spirit, that right hope, there's a change that happens there. And what Peter is showing here is the true heart of biblical leadership. Notice how Peter identifies himself here. He doesn't identify himself as the Apostle Peter. He doesn't identify himself as, hey, this is the first Pope speaking to you guys, right? He doesn't identify himself as, hey, this is Water Walker Peter coming in hot. Prepare what I'm about to tell you, right? He doesn't say anything like that. Instead, Peter brings himself even closer to them by identifying himself as a fellow elder. Even though he was one of the 12 disciples, one of the 12 apostles, even though he was within Jesus' tight-knit unit, he identified himself just like all the guys there in that church. Instead of bringing dividing lines, trying to put himself as a higher position, more important than the other people, he's saying, hey guys, I'm just like you. And this strength that I want to give to you so that you can go down a certain course, so you can go down a certain path. Certain leaders, they want as much distance between themselves and the people serving or working under them, right? There's some people, they just want to lead from an ivory tower and they say, hey, you go do this. You don't even see their face. They just call you, right? Or text you or they just zoom you, right? And they're just telling you what you're doing wrong. But then there's that leader that wants to lead by example, Wants to bring you in close and share life with you. And that's exactly what Christ did with his disciples. He brought them in close, right? Three years of living together, of sharing life together. And yet how many times did these guys fail? 
over and over and over again, right? And yet he shared life with them. And yes, he spent time alone in the wilderness. He spent time alone to pray. He spent time alone in the word. He had to spend the time alone on the cross. But much of his ministry was being so close to these 12 knuckleheads, right? Having to deal with their moms, having to deal with their in-laws, having to deal with so much of their family. And again, that's the heartbeat that we should have towards church. There's some people in here that they just want to come in and out and be like a church ninja, right? Church commando. You almost see them like crawling in through the back, right? Crawling in. When I was a little kid, I used to try to crawl under the pews and just go straight through. And there's some people that they just like try to crawl in. They just sort of peek out, sit down, right? Service happens. Service takes place. They say amen, and then they sneak back under their chair, and they start sliding back out. But that's not what Christ has called us to be as a church. He calls us to be a family, to share life with one another so that we can pull each other close, so that we can sling each other in the right direction for Christ. And the question for some of us is, do we want the blessed privilege of being able to influence the maturity and growth in someone else? Do you want that privilege? Because that privilege is only going to come by sharing life with people. For Jesus, it was three years sharing life with these guys, and they still didn't get it. Every day, day in and day out, feeding them, right? Peter paying his taxes, taking care of them, dealing with their bickering, dealing with their flesh outs, right? And yet he still loved them. Jesus is saying, and Peter is saying here, let's do this together. Hey, guys, we need to go together in this specific action, down this specific path. And this is the biblical strategy in helping someone else to grow and to go down a certain course of action. Charles Spurgeon, he says, It will always be our wisdom, dear friends, to put ourselves as much as we can into the position of those whom we address. It is a pity for anyone ever to seem to preach down to people. It is always better to be as nearly as possible on the same level as they are. Right? Anyone here love being preached down to, right? Someone loathing you, telling you about how much worse of a believer you are, how much worse of a Christian you are, and how incredible they are, right? It's disgusting. It's like uh, instant indigestion, right? Instead, Peter, he brings himself right on the same path as them. Right on the same level. And as we deal with unbelievers, as we, deal with, as we deal with growing believers, we should be drawing ourselves as near as we can to the same level as they are at. A couple of scriptures to remind us of Jesus' style of leadership. Because after our word, did Peter learn leadership? It was under Jesus Christ himself. We go to John chapter 13. And there in John 13, we see Jesus giving a very big example to his 12 knuckleheads, right? John chapter 13, this portion of scripture has just been coming up a lot in Bible studies recently, right? We know the 12 disciples, since they were little kids, they always knew, hey, you don't go into a house without cleaning and washing your feet. You don't go and have dinner without washing your feet because everybody's laying down, everybody's feet is in the face of the person next to them, right? So since they were little, their abuelas taught them, hey, you never come inside with your feet dirty, they're all prideful. They don't want to wash one another's feet, so they all come in. Their feet are filthy. John chapter 13, Jesus, he's the one that gets down and starts to wash their feet. And then in verse 14, it says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Again, Jesus being our leader, our savior, our champion. And here he says, your teacher, our teacher, if he took the lowliest task that any slave could take, and now he's telling the rest of the men, hey, follow my example in taking the low road and use this as a pattern for your life. Right? Do you walk into a room and you say, hey, what's the lowliest task here? Are there toilets that need to be scrubbed, right? Chairs that need to be put away? Diapers that need to be changed, right? Is that our heart when we come into a room? Jesus wants us to be humble and to have a desire to serve one another, that's the heart of Christ. It's not to step into a room and say, hey, what can these people do for me? And if we're honest, that's what the world does. They step into a room and say, what can all these people do for me? Who can I suck the life out of here, right, to help myself and benefit myself? The believer, the Christian, we should be walking into a room and saying, who needs service today? Who needs help today? Lord, who can I serve? Who, who can I love on? Spurgeon, he says, if there be any deed of kindness or love that we can do for the very meanest and the most obscure of God's people, we ought to be willing to do it. We ought to be willing to be servants to God's servants. That should be our heart. And again, right, no one here, right, if Pastor Raz needs something, everybody run to his attention, right? Try to help him. But then you have just some random person that comes to the church that maybe you don't like that much, right? And he needs help, and you're saying, eh, you should call the church office about that, right? You should call someone else. You call Calvary Chapel Fort Lauderdale, right? Maybe they can help you out, right? That should not be our heart. We should take on the lowliest task, even if it's for the meanest or most obscure of God's people, right? These 12 disciples have gone all these three years arguing about who's the greatest, Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? They're next to the Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth. And they're all arguing, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Right? Come on. Jesus tells us, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Again, the blessing for us is not just knowing this portion of scripture. The blessing for us is not even just knowing the right application towards this portion of scripture. The blessing only comes to us if we are doing this portion of scripture if we really are serving God's servants right husbands if you get home after a long day of work and you're thinking how can I bless my wife how can I care for her what are the dishes I need to wash what are the things I can do to help her again we need to be humble we need to do real service towards one another because Christ, our teacher, says, hey, this is the pattern of good works I'm setting up for you. And we're going to see how that pattern of good works, it applies to us. Another portion of scripture, Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, right? We were talking about how the disciples like to argue about who's best. This portion of scripture is kind of hilarious, right? A mom comes into the picture, pulls Jesus aside and says, hey, can my son sit at your right hand right in heaven? Mom's coming alongside trying to put in a good word for her sons. And then Jesus in verse 25, he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet 
It shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Again, jockeying for position within church, blocking others out in order to grow up the corporate ladder of Calvary Chapel, Miami, right? That should be nowhere near us. It should not be so. We should have a heart to serve one another. You really want to grow in the kingdom of God? Serve as much as you can. Take the lowly road. But what happens in our pride is, hey, I've been serving here for so long, and yet so-and-so is getting a promotion, right? We think, I've been here for so long, and now so-and-so, they're moving up here, and they're moving up there. And that's our pride. We, we shouldn't be there. Again, if you're trying to grow in church leadership for more power or more position, you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong business, right? That's what other clubs, other groups are for. This is not the heart of Christ. He says the unbelievers, the Gentiles, they get power, they get authority so they can lord it over the people. So that now they can look down at the people. They can scoff at the people about how great they are and how lowly the mere mortals are. That shouldn't be so within the group of believers, within the body of believers. But we should be serving one another. David Guzik, he says, real ministry is done for the benefit of those ministered to, not for the benefit of the minister. Again, real church, real ministry is not that the leadership and the servants are seeing what can I suck out of the people. Real ministry is the pastors and it's the servants saying, who can I minister? What's the benefit of the people? How are the people going to be blessed? That's the heart of true ministry. Spurgeon, he continues, he says, he received nothing from others, speaking of Christ. His was a life of giving and the giving of a life. No service is greater than to redeem sinners by his own death, and no ministry is lowlier than to die in the stead of sinners. Right? How many of us would sign up for that at church, right? Anybody want to sign up for the serve somebody else's life sentence ministry at church? Pay someone else's debts at church, right? Take someone else's loans and liens at church ministry. We don't want any of that. And yet that's what Christ went through. And he says, hey, this is the example. This is true church leadership. This is true leadership and the true ladder in heaven is serving the people more and more. And again, Peter, he's reaching out to these elders, not for some money, not to benefit himself, not for his new ministry or his new jet or his new boat. Peter is reaching out to them, wanting to give them the same advice in ministry during a rough season in time as Jesus Christ gave him at a rough season in his life. That's what Peter's desire is here, right? Back to the scripture, the elders who are among you, I exhort I who am a fellow elder. Peter's desire here is to give them some advice that he received at a low point in life. But the way he's identifying with them, it's that word elder, that word elder, I'm sure you've heard it within church circles, right? And the idea of an elder is someone who is more mature, someone who has more wisdom, someone who's older. And this is what makes them qualified for leadership. Now, within a church, it's not just age because everyone matures at a different rate. People get wisdom at a different rate. 
right? You go into the first grader class and all the kids are not the same height, right? You go to a senior class and all the kids do not have the same amount of maturity, right? And the same is true within the church, within the body. Some people are like, that guy's too young to be in the ministry, right? But the Lord had it that he just grew and matured that much quicker. And it's something that's been around since the beginning of really church government in a sense. You find it in the book of Exodus chapter 19 verse 7. It says, so then Moses came and he called for the elders of the people. And Moses lays before them all the words which the Lord commanded him. You find it three or four times within the book of Exodus. This word elder. It's the same word as bishop or overseer. It's the same word that's just sort of passed around depending if they're getting the Greek idea of it or the Jewish idea of it. It's simply those who presided over the assemblies. It's literally the overseer. And the job of the guy is that he'd be looking out for the interest of the people. He's looking at everything happening within the church. And maybe you're here and you're saying, how do you become an elder, right? Do you have to tithe a certain amount? Do you have to get a certain chair? Is it after like seven years of service, you hit a balloon and then now you can come into the elder group, right? Is it something like that? No, the way you become an elder is just to grow in maturity with the Lord. That's the way you get to those positions and those places with Christ. Uh, In John chapter 15, you could turn there quickly if you want to. It says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So again, how can we become an elder in church? We need to mature. We need to mature in our faith with Christ. That's one of the things there, I believe, in 1 Timothy, where it says, lay hands on no man suddenly. Make sure that they're maturing, that it's not just a quick high before they crash back down to earth. Make sure that they are actually mature. Did some research, right, thinking about, you guys know how much I like food. But um, how long does it take a tree to bear fruit, right? I don't know if you ever thought about that. Okay, I want a fruit tree in my backyard. How long does it take for me to buy this little thing and stick it in the ground? How long am I going to have to wait before I can actually eat something instead of going to Publix over and over and over again, right? All of them take a year or more. At best, if you get a fig tree, I don't know if you love figs that much, it takes a year or two. Mulberry trees take a year if you take a grafted tree. Nectarines take three years. Peaches take three years. Apricots take three years. Pears take three years. You would die of starvation before you got to eat any fruit off of any of these trees, right? Again, the only way we can bear fruit is if we are abiding in Christ. So if you want to mature, you want, man, I desire to be able to influence others to love Christ more, you got to mature. And the only way to mature within Christianity is to abide in Jesus Christ. It's to spend more time with the Lord. It's to spend more time in His Word. Abide with Jesus, mature, bear fruit, and continue to abide with Jesus, mature, and bear fruit over and over and over again. There in the first verse, Peter identifies himself as an elder, a witness, and a partaker. He's saying, hey guys, I'm qualified to speak with you, not just because I'm an apostle or I'm great or I'm grand. Hey, I'm qualified to speak to you because I'm an elder just like you guys. I'm qualified to speak to you as a witness because I saw Jesus Christ tortured. 
Right? He looked at me. He looked down into me right after I denied him those three times. I saw him beaten and bruised. And that's why we should hold on and take that joy within the suffering because we're looking more and more like Christ. He was also a partaker or a future partaker in his future glory. But he was able to see that glory there at the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there with that tight-knit group being able to see the glory of Jesus Christ saying, Whoa, one day... We're going to partake in this same glory. So again, Peter, he's pulled them in close, right? He's shown how I'm the same as you guys. He's showing how Jesus pulled him in close. And now he's going to give that excitement. He's going to give that strength, that spirit, and that courage to his fellow elders that they may follow a certain course of action. So what's that certain course of action? What's the most important thing for an elder or a mature person within the body of Christ as a pastor, an elder, an overseer, a bishop? Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. That's the most important thing for a pastor or an elder or an overseer. Right? If the, all the dads here, you're the priest of your home. And now the most important thing for you in your home is to shepherd the flock of God which is among you. You got to shepherd them. That's the most important thing. It's not to entertain them, not to make them feel better, or anything else. It is to shepherd the flock of God which is among you. And shepherds, they've been a main theme throughout the Bible, even longer than elders have been a theme throughout the Bible, right? You have Abel. He's a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. Moses, he had to be a shepherd for 40 years, right? Beloved David, the greatest king in Israel, he was a shepherd, even some of the prophets, Amos and Zechariah, they spent time living a life of a shepherd. So Peter, he's saying, hey guys, the most important thing for us in these last days, in this season of getting beat up by the world and by our family, it's to shepherd the flock of God which is among you. And there's no doubt he's giving the advice he's been given from Christ from John chapter 21, verse 15 through 17. Again, a low point in Peter's career you know, he's made a career out of putting his foot in his mouth, right? And it's a low point. He denied his beloved Savior three times, and then he dies, right? And he's thinking, that's it. I got no chance at this. Got no shot at this. He's super bummed. He says, hey, I'm going back to fishing, right? And then what happens? There's a guy on the shore and says, hey, you guys aren't catching anything. Why don't you just throw the rod and reel on the other side of the boat? Yeah, okay, guy, right? Right away, they catch a bunch of fish, and right away, he knew who it was. He jumps off the boat, he gets to shore, and then Jesus, he already has food, he already has fish prepared for them. And now Jesus, there on the side of the shore, he speaks to him. Verse 15, John 21, it says, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Again, Jesus is asking him, hey, do you agape me, right? Do you love me unconditionally? And he's saying, Lord, I love you, but I, I don't love you like that. I'm not capable of doing that. So then the last one, Jesus comes down to his level and says, okay, do you really love me like this? 
And that's why he's grieved. That's why he's brokenhearted. But Jesus gives him those same three chances to restore him. He denied Christ three times. And now Jesus shows grace, giving him those three chances to say, yes, Lord, I love you. I love you. So what are the two commands that he gave him? Feed my lambs and tend my sheep. And here is the role for shepherding a flock. I don't know how many shepherds we have here, right? I don't know how many of you have ever seen a sheep in your life, right? Cartoons don't count. Clay animation doesn't count, right? Those things don't count. But, man, the way you shepherd a flock, there is two main priorities. The very first thing, right, think of a little baby, is feed the sheep. Got to make sure they're well-fed. That would take work. You'd have to scout out the land. You'd have to see where there's those still waters, where there's those lush green fields. And the second one is the more difficult one, right, which is to tend the sheep. And tending the sheep, there's a lot to unpack there, right? Tending the sheep, it's to protect the sheep. It's to guide the sheep. It's to nurture the sheep. And it's to care for the sheep. Right? You have a baby and you think it's the hardest thing in the world, but you're basically just feeding them and cleaning them. That's about it, right? And dealing with their crying when it makes no sense. That's, those are the three things, right? But as they get older, then you got to start guiding them, got to start nurturing them, got to start protecting them, caring for them. What are they watching? What are they listening to? Ooh, that friend, I don't like that much. Okay, what about this? What about that? And that gets so much more complicated. But this is the life of a shepherd. This is the life of a true church leader. It's not about his own pocket. It's not about benefiting himself or blessing himself. It's all about tending the Lord's sheep. You can write down Acts 20, verse 28. There it says, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Again, it's not my church. It's not Raz's church. This is Christ's church that now he says, hey, I'm going to hire you for a certain season to take care of my flock. The same flock that he was willing to lay down his own life for now he says, hey, Zach, this is the flock that I want you to take care of. If you're overseeing kiddos ministry, right, or parking lot or, or golf cart, he's saying, hey, this is the flock I want you to take care of. And he's saying, hey, this flock is very important to me. I am willing to die for this flock, right? John chapter 10, verse 11 through 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one that does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. Again, family, we're a family. You're going to have friction. You're going to have fights within a family, right? And there's going to be a certain season. I don't know when. I'm not thinking about anybody, right? That a pastor is going to come and talk to you about just something they see in your life. Maybe something they see in oh, your kid's life, right? And then there's two options. Either right away our pride comes in and we say, who in the world are you to tell me anything, right? Or we're able to see here, John chapter 10, 11 through 14, the only shepherd that steps in to speak is someone that actually cares about the sheep. A hireling sees the wolves coming into your family, the wolves coming after your kids and says, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole, right? I'm not going there. I know how kids can be idols in my own life. Right? I'm not going there. That's what the hireling does. But a true shepherd, he's willing to lay down his own life for the sheep. 
Again, that's going to happen sooner or later. It always happens. To check our pride, the family loving one another, checking one another. So again, see what happens in your heart. When someone says, hey, have you thought about this? Have you seen this show? Have you thought about this book? Have you seen that person? And they're just caring about you. So then again, he says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. And then he gives a certain parameters, right? How do we shepherd the flock of God? How do we feed them? It's all about feeding them God's word, right? God's so gracious, he gives us the food to give to you guys, right? And the more I get out of the way, the more the Bible, the simpler and easier and the more healthy you will be, whether this is the church you will live and die in or whether you go to another church, keep that in mind. That's the way you grow. It's by being fed, not by being entertained, not by having fun, not by being relevant or any of these other things. It's by being fed. So he says they're serving as overseers. We've seen this word already, right? That overseer, that bishop. It's someone who watches over the flock. He's a manager, a supervisor, and he takes care. He sees all the things happening. And that's the job of a bishop or an overseer. It's to inspect. It's to look after. It's to care for the people. That same word is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1 verse 7. And there within Timothy and Titus, there's certain parameters given for a man that wants to be a bishop or an overseer, right? A one-woman type of man. They must be blameless, temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, right? Able to teach. He can't be quick-tempered. He can't be given to wine. He can't be violent. And then we see the second thing here to, again, love that flock, take care of the flock, feed the flock, tend the flock. As an overseer, watching out for the care of the sheep, can't just be sleeping, can't just be caring about himself, right? Then he says, not by compulsion, but willingly, right? That word compulsion, it's not by force, it's not by constraint, right? Thank the Lord, Pastor Raz, he didn't tell me, hey, you have to be a pastor or I'm disowning you as a son, right? Uh, when Adrian went to talk to Pastor Raz about Alicia, he didn't say, you want my daughter? You have to be a pastor at Calvary Chapel, Miami, right? There's nothing like that. There's no compulsion there. There's no force or constraint there. And again, no one should be forced into the ministry. If you think you've been forced into whatever area you're serving, step down right away. We don't want anyone serving here by force or compulsion. We're not out there trying to grab people saying, hey, you can chew gum and walk. Hey, we need you to serve here, 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 here. Not at all. No one should have to be in ministry. We should all be voluntarily willing to serve the Lord. Out of a willing heart saying, Lord, I volunteer, Lord. It's out of my own accord. I desire to serve you. After you've blessed me so much, after you have served me so much, Lord, how can I not help but want to serve the flock of God among you? F.B. Meyer, he says, none of God's soldiers are mercenaries or pressed men. They are all volunteers. We must have a shepherd's heart if we would do a shepherd's work. Right? No one in church is a mercenary for hire, right? Hey, golf cart, how much you pay me to serve for you, Right? Hey, worship ministry, how badly do you need me, right? Can I be lead guitar, lead vocal, right? That's not why we should be serving. It should be out of a willing heart. You could write down John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Jesus, he says, therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. 
I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Again, no one forced Jesus to die on the cross for us. He did that willingly. No one took his life. He did that willingly. And the same is true of the heart that we should have in serving God's people. So if parents, if you're trying to pressure your kids into serving, you got to back it up. Don't do that at all. Right? You can make sure they come to church no matter what, if they like it or not. But you can't be forcing them to serve. The next thing there, the heart that we should have, it's not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Again, pastors, leaders, overseers, we shouldn't be in the ministry because we couldn't make it anywhere else. That's not why we should be in the ministry. That's the worst reason to be in the ministry. I think anyone in church leadership should be able to excel in any job that they're given because we're serving unto the Lord and we want excellence, right? Imagine having a parent-teacher conference. So, hey, why did you want to become a teacher? Well, after I got off parole, I couldn't find a job anywhere. So I had a friend that worked at this school. So thank God I got this job. But I don't really like it at all. I'm taking my kids out of here right away. And sadly, there's some people in ministry because they can't make it anywhere else. They wouldn't hack it anywhere else, right? And that's sad. That should not be the case. We shouldn't be doing this for our own money, for our own benefit. In Isaiah 56, God's calling out the leaders within Israel. You could write down verses 9 through 12. But there in verse 11, God is calling out the leaders in Israel. And he says, they are greedy dogs which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain. And sadly, you look at popular Christianity today, and that's all you see. Most of those pastors, they are in it for their own gain, only for their own pockets, right? It's so sad sometimes you can't help but laugh. One pastor saying, yeah, I need a private jet because there's just too many demons on normal commercial airlines, right? I need my own private jet. I need a second private jet. I promised my wife a Ferrari. God wants me to give my wife a Ferrari. So I need you. Someone here has $100 in their pocket. I need you to put it in the offering box, right? We're going to pass one offering plate. The guy's counted it. There's not enough there, so we're going to pass it again, right? That's sad. That's sickening. And again, that's what we see often in church. It's a blessing having so many new people come, but there's friction that sometimes arises. And sometimes uh, many of these people that are into the health and wealth, right? We talk about how Jesus, he's not just a self-help guru. But many of these pastors, they have net worths of $5 million, $10 million, $50 million, $20 million net worth. And if he had a job in something else, if he invested in Bitcoin early on, I got no problems with that, right? But it's off the backs of poor old ladies, right, donating the few dollars that they have. Or you think of that widow with those two mites. Whenever I think of the money here at church, in my mind, I always just picture a bunch of like old ladies, right, that have nothing and that's what they're giving, right? If some of you guys remember Celso, that's the first person I think of. Whenever I think of the money here at church, like, man, Lord, someone like Celso is the one that's giving the money here. And, Lord, that's what we have. It's not for us. It's not for my own benefit. In uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 7, it says, A bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, and not greedy for money. King James is cool. It says, not for filthy lucre, right? You don't even know what that is, but you just don't want to touch it. You don't want anything to deal with it, right? And that's the way that our heart should be when it comes to money in the ministry. Lord, I don't want to touch it. 
Lord, I don't want to touch the money. I don't want to touch the glory. Lord, I don't want to touch the women or the girls. Lord, that is all yours. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3 and 8, you see the same thing there from Paul to Timothy. You cannot be greedy for money and be a deacon or an elder. Instead, they should be serving willingly apart from the paycheck and apart from the benefits to just be a willing servant unto the Lord. Again, one of my favorite verses in all the scripture, he who is forgiven much loveth much. And that's the type of people that should be in church leadership. Those people that realize how much they've been forgiven. Then in verse 3 it says, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. That word Lord, the idea here is to have control over someone, to hold someone in subjection, to be the master over someone. It's to lord it over them. You're assuming, you're treating people with an air of being more superior than they are. You're greater than they are because you're the apostle so-and-so, right? You are reverend so-and-so, and now you're greater than the normal, common people. It's a strange thing being a pastor, right? You give a Bible study, and then the second you walk off, I'm just a sheep like everybody else. I'm struggling through things just like you are. I put my pants on the same way you guys do. I have to take care of my kids, my wife, car accidents, taxes, cleaning the house, honey-do lists, just like everybody else. And that is the way that God wants people to be serving. Not an air that I'm better than anyone else. No, I'm the same as everyone else. Leaders in ministry, they shouldn't have control over the people. You shouldn't be having to go to a pastor or elder asking, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I buy this type of car? Can I buy this house? Can I buy X? Can I buy Y? Can I buy Z? We are not to have dominion over your faith or relationship with Jesus Christ. Oftentimes the pastors here, if I'm honest, sometimes we show too much grace because some people are thinking ridiculous things, but they're saying, thus saith the Lord. And it's not against Scripture. Say, okay, bro, if you're saying that's what Jesus told you, then you go for that, right? That's the way it should be. Your walk with God is between you and the Lord. There's very few times, right, sometimes we teach our kids, don't say the word hate. That's a strong word, right? And very few times in the New Testament do you see God hating something, or Jesus hating something. One of the few times you see it's in Revelation chapter 2 verse 6. And it says, but this you hate. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. And the Nicolaitans, the nickname for them was the veil builders. Right? Jesus, he died and the veil was torn in two. Opening up fellowship between normal people with Christ. We don't have to go to a high priest. We don't have to go to the temple anymore. But these Nicolaitans, they were making that veil. They were saying, no, you can only go to God through me. you got to ask me before you buy certain things or, or do certain things. They believed that they were better than the rest of the people. That the people needed to go through them in order to talk to God. And God hates that. God hates that. You shouldn't have to go to a pastor in order to hear from the Lord. You just need to get your Bible and spend some time alone in quietness and say, Lord, I'm here. I'm cutting off the distractions. Lord, I'm here. Oftentimes, if someone has a problem with something we're saying, we say, hey, you go to Scripture. I used to hate it as a little kid. My dad would tell it to me, right? Say, hey, you're going to get a spanking for this. You're doing X, Y, Z. But Zach, if you find something in Scripture that says otherwise, show me. I know, Dad. There's nothing in Scripture that says otherwise, right? I think Alicia would actually read the Bible. She's good. She's holy. I never would go there. I say, that's a waste of time, right? I'm not going to go there. I already know what he's doing, right? But that's what we really tell people. That's what we tell them. We say, hey, you have a problem with what the church is doing here? 
read the Bible, and if you can really prove to us that this, this, or this belongs here, you can show us. Or there might just be another church that kind of burnt down because they held on to those beliefs, but now you're here trying to bring those same beliefs into here. It makes no sense, right? For honest, sort of like communism, right? It's like, hey, this burnt down over here. This burnt down. Let me come bring this over here, right? And oftentimes people do that with churches. Hey, this church completely got torched to the ground because they started believing this. I think it would be great if Calvary Miami started doing this, right? They're like, no, they did that. That's why that church fell apart. You can go there if you want. But we don't want to do things like that. So again, the heart of a pastor shouldn't be to get in between the people and God, but to push them towards the Lord. Again, to encourage them, hey, you spend time alone with the Lord. The second half of verse 3, it says, over those entrusted to you. And this is a sobering fact for a pastor, for an elder, a deacon, for the parents here. These are not my people, right? Sometimes pastors say, hey, how many people you have going to your church or what kind of people you have at your church? No, this is not my church. You all belong to the Lord. And he has simply entrusted you and committed certain people into the care of myself and the other pastors here. And the same is true for our kids. God has entrusted them into our care for a certain season. And then when we get to heaven, just like we're going to see here in a moment, God's going to say, what did you do with the people I entrusted into your care? Again, we shouldn't lord it over them. We shouldn't think that we're hot stuff as a pastor. Instead of thinking that you're superior to the rest of the flock or right, superior to our kids, he says that we're to be an example to them. Right? That's what he says, continue here, but being an example to the flock. That word there is a stamp. It's a pattern. I don't know how many of you guys have been to a museum and have seen a typewriter before, right? I used to have a typewriter. My brother and sister used to have typewriters, right? And it was literally a stamp that would get the ink and then put the letter and then the, the paper would pass. And that's what the word is saying here that you want to be a leader, you want to be an elder, a deacon, a pastor. You're supposed to be the stamp and the pattern of Christ for the people that you serve. That's what Christ desires of us, not to be a Lord and authority over the people. But instead, my life is to be an example and a stamp on your life after Christ has stamped me with his life. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. In Titus chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, it says, In all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Again, family, Christ, he was our pattern. He said, hey, you follow me. This is what you do. This is the way we should live. And now we, as we grow in Christ, we look more and more like him. The sobering thing, the scary thing, is that the church will take on the strengths and the weaknesses of their pastors and of their leaders. Just like our kids will take on the strengths and weaknesses of their mom and their dad. It's a sobering truth, but this is how God says, this is how you Take care of the people. Not that you lord over them, but be an example to them. That's why all over the pastoral epistles, it's all about, hey, you want to be in church leadership? Is your home in order? Because if your home is not in order and now they pull you out as the stamp within Calvary, Miami, then everybody else's family is going to start being in disorder and disorder and disorder. Finally, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away 
as a result of being that good example, when that chief shepherd appears, he will give us a crown of victory. And Jesus, he is the chief shepherd. He's literally the chief pastor of the church. And he's going to come back one day asking myself and the church leaders and every church leader throughout the world, how did you treat the people I entrusted to your care? He's the one who decides if I did a good job or if I did a bad job. He's the one that decides if I was faithful or not faithful. And he's the one that should be leading the pastors and the leaders in this church and in every church. Right On Sunday, we looked at the problems when a pastor follows the lead of the people, right? Aaron. The people all come to him. They say, Moses, he's gone. We don't know what's happened to him. And this is what we want. And that's the danger when a pastor just starts doing whatever the people say. Right? Maybe you may be frustrated. You may tell myself or some of the other pastors, we should start doing X, Y, or Z. Hey, we got to pray about it. We got to pray and see what the Lord has for us, right? I hope as parents you do the same thing. You don't just say, hey, your son or daughter says, hey, we should start having ice cream every single meal. Yes, Harvey, that's a great idea, right? Hopefully that's not all you do. Hey, we have to check this out. Let's go to the authorities. Let's see what happens. The same is true. And Jesus is going to ask us, did you feed them? Jesus is going to ask us, did you tend to them? Did you protect them? Did you guide them? Did you nurture them? Did you care for them? And if we did well, if we were faithful with whatever number he allotted to our care, we will receive that crown. That's the danger sometimes in churches. They get consumed with numbers, right? How do we bring in the people? How do we bring in the people? How do we bring in the people? There, what Peter is literally saying is that Christ allots a certain amount of people to each shepherd. Christ is the one that adds to the church, and he's the one that subtracts from the church. I willingly ask him, Lord, subtract, and Lord, add, as you seem fit. We don't have to worry about that as church or as church leadership. Our job is to feed them, and to tend to them. And then he says, if we've done well, if we're faithful, he's going to give us a crown of glory, right? And in this day and age, you could think of the Olympics. They'd be given that wreath that would fade away. It would crumble. It would wither away. But that's not what we're going to receive. We're going to receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. And maybe you're here and you're a little jealous. Hey, Zach, I want some crowns too, man. What's up with that? Only for pastors? Only for leaders? Only for elders? No. Here's the joy. There's heavenly crowns for anyone who is faithful to what Christ has allotted to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, it says, Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. 2 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 8, finally there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day and not to me only but also to all who love his appearing. Finally, James chapter 1, verse 12, it says, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Again, family, everyone, each and every one of us who are faithful to what Christ has allotted to our care, to what Christ has called us to, we will receive our crowns. Again, that joy, that one physical thing that we can give back to our Lord and Savior.